Welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hey, everyone, and welcome back. Happy Thanksgiving. Also, especially to my American listeners. Connor and I went to Scotland where we met up with family who hopped across the pond to meet us. We went to Mull of Kintyre. It was beautiful. Highly recommend. And you know, if Paul McCartney sings a song about a place, it's going to be good. Before we get rolling into today's very special episode, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to my monthly QKD newsletter for all the behind the scenes stuff of this podcast, see where I've been going, what I've been getting up to for research for my bread, wine and cheese upcoming book. And I also share interesting things that I've seen all around the web. The link to subscribe to that is in the show notes. And of course, please give the podcast five stars if you enjoy listening to it. It really does help others find it. In today's episode, I'll be sharing exclusively a full panel discussion of a British library event. It's the food series event titled Women in Cheese. But before that, I interview one of the coolest and most impressive women in food that I have met. Her name is Polly Russell. Using food as a kind of lens to understand the past, the politics of the past, the people of the past, the tastes of the past. Polly is a food historian and curator for the British Library. She's got a PhD in food, or as her husband calls it, a FUD in food. She writes a column for the Financial Times called The History Cook, and she's presented for the BBC. I absolutely loved having Polly. She is the best. So join us for our conversation. And then if you're interested to stick around for the full panel, please do. Hi, Polly. Hello. I am so excited to have you on the Keep It Quirky podcast. I am so excited to be on the podcast, (laughs) which I love. (laughs) Well, thank you. We met, oh man, was it a couple years ago now? Yes, probably, or maybe 18 months. Maybe 18, we'll go with 18 months. That will make us feel better. Yeah, it will. Um, At Neil's Yard Dairy, which is, I think, one of both of our favorite places. Indeed. So what do you do? What just, I know you do things beyond the British Library. So fill us in. Who are you? Polly Russell. I am, um, I wear a number of hats. So at the British Library, I work as a curator for contemporary politics and public life. And I'm also a food historian. So I tend to also look at the collections at the British Library through the lens of food. And outside of my work at the British Library, because I work here only three days a week, I write about food, I think about food, I talk about food. So food is sort of at the center of lots of what I do. And you have an amazing column with the Financial Times. Yes, I've got a column called The History Cook, which I mean, it's just such fun. I'm allowed to sort of roam almost where I, I want. and But using food as a kind of lens to understand the past, the politics of the past, the people of the past, the tastes of the past. And I want to ask you about a cheese journey you went on for the Financial Times. But before I ask you about that, um, let's talk about that you are a doctor, Dr. Polly Russell. What did you get your PhD in or what's, what's going on there? Well, my husband likes to say that I've got a foot in food. And um, so I did a a doctorate uh, in using oral history, but looking at the politics of food and its relationship to identity in post-war Britain. 
What? And this I, is awesome. It was it was a pretty amazing three years. I had this. I was working collaboratively with the British Library. The British Library has this incredible oral history collection. Um, and I was sort of charged with collecting an interview of British food producers. And so we created this collection, this archive called Food from Source to Sales Point. And I went around the country interviewing people whose economic lives are bound up with food. So whether that was um, people working in supermarkets or butchers or uh, Chinese chip shop owners or Indian restaurant owners, uh, trying to create an archive which told the story of what had happened to food really since kind of 1945 to the present day, which at that time was the sort of mid-1990s. And would you say that the overarching theme of what has happened to food was industrialization? Is it, or, or is it way more complicated than that? I, I think it probably is more complicated than that. Yeah. I think that that's the sort of headline umbrella right. story. But also what emerges, in a sense, is a sort of schizophrenic food culture, because on the one hand, you have the emergence of industrialized food, um, sort of mass, mass food production. But at the same time, you have the emergence of a very diverse food culture of food choice and taste really transforming in that in that period so that people's tastes really broaden what becomes available broadens people's interest in food you know it's just gone kind of stratospheric compared to what it was so on the one hand you have a kind of homogenized food culture uh, ch- cheap mass produced food this is very simply put but then on the other hand you have a kind of very rich and exciting um, and evolving food culture too do you feel like so okay you've like handed in your your work right you you've got your doctorate do you, but this is a continuing story do you feel like you could like pick it up and do a like a part two do you know what so, i'm so pleased you said that katie because i mean i'm pleased because i feel like anyone out there who's doing a phd should know I feel that that this is just the beginning of the journey, you know, that really you're just starting out on your uh, sort of research. And I I don't feel like I've stopped learning ever. And that is, of course, the great joy of thinking about food, because the only thing you know is that you will never know everything. (laughs) And that is just thrilling. So I constantly feel like I'm doing a PhD, that I meet people who have incredible expertise in things that I have no idea about, that when I look around the collections at the British Library, I uncover people, stories, events, make connections around food that uh, you know, st- surprising to me, and and that is probably the reason I love food. So this, this endless journey, but also it is such a democratic subject. Everybody is an expert in food. It doesn't matter whether you've studied it or not. You know, you have got an opinion on food. You have you know about food because you eat it, and so you can talk to anybody and engage with anyone around food and ideas about food. And that for me is you know endlessly thrilling. I love that. It it is the ultimate democratic content, (laughs) if you will. Yeah. 
I, I daydream about going and getting like a food anthropology PhD, which I see a huge overlap, obviously, with that and what you did, you know, different names, but that's almost semantics in a way, right? I think. Yes, I think the, the, the other thing that's wonderful about food is that it resists boundaries. So, you know, y- you could look at food anthropology, food sociology, food in literature, food in geography, food, you know, and actually what you're going to find is that mo- food literally and metaphorically kind of moves across and through boundaries and borders and therefore it sort of forces us to be in conversation across subjects across disciplines uh, across ideas you know it is the great connector it can also be the great divider i suppose sure well because it is so personal and people have such strong opinions Exactly. But it is a, a a great kind of conceptual way of thinking through different disciplines. Yeah. I love what you said about it not having boundaries. And yet we try to place boundaries on it all the time. And in one way of it, with your curation of the British Library's food series, which is an annual series two years now. Yes. So 2020 will be our third season. You, in a way, as you're curating these events, because you are the curator, is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You do an awesome job. In a way, you're needing to draw boundaries just to present something, just to like, you know, contact people to put on a panel about something, right? You have to define it in a way. Um, How do you decide what these events will be? And they're amazing. Really, Polly, congratulations. It's pretty incredible. That's so kind of you. Of course, I work with a wonderful programmer here, and there's a great team around the whole um, season. But I think that the idea behind the season was to think as broadly as possible. So try, in a sense, to resist boundaries. And so the season consists of around 30, 35 events. They can be talks, tastings, workshops. Um, And what we really wanted to do was where most food festivals, food seasons, food festivals are fabulous they tend to be very much focused on sort of eating and tasting with talks around the side i think that's fair to say enroll people with their carnal desires of just stuffing their faces which i entirely endorse (laughs) which is brilliant Um, but this was really you know ideas around food kind of how we can talk about and think through food Uh, and that feels like the right thing to be doing at the British Library uh, because this is a sort of space of research and ideas. Um, And so that's really the frame and then within that we we roam pretty widely and that's what we want to do so we definitely want to be able to talk about uh, the sort of politics of food you know food poverty sustainability um, waste plastics we've we've had wonderful events around those sorts of subjects we also want to be able to think about food and its relationship to humor or food and its relationship to children's literature we did a brilliant event that I just loved which was called um, Snozcumber's Raspberry Jam and Midnight Feast last year which was about food in children's <laughs> literature. Best yeah. title ever. It was just brilliant. It was about food in children's literature. So again it's this other way of, kind of, of coming at food. Um, we had really high profile people so of course that is wonderful. Yeah, we had- to name a few, Nigella Lawson, Yoram Adelenghi, B. Wilson. 
Yeah, we had some wonderful speakers. Yeah, the list and, goes on. Yeah, and what is great about uh, doing something at the British Library with people like that is that there's an expectation that they will be talking, you know, in a in a way that's really intellectually engaged, but also very entertaining. So and you know, accessible for yeah, the masses, absolutely. And yeah. you know, so talking about the sort of. Uh, Nigella Lawson was in conversation with B. Wilson and Ella Risbridger, who'd written Roast Chicken and Midnight Stories. She'd written a sort of autobiographical recipe book, uh, which is partly about sort of de- depression and coming to be more sort of happy and healthy through cooking. It's a very, very interesting book, beautifully written. And they were talking about the act of writing, you know, about food, about what what this means of kind of what is good food writing it was absolutely fascinating Ottolenghi was talking about the nature of taste so you know taste as a social marker as a kind of physiological um, experience just brilliant having Ottolenghi you know the king of taste uh, there talking about those things but equally we can do events which are you know perhaps not quite so obviously popular so we had the most wonderful historian talking about 18th century recipe manuscripts which was electrifying so we can we can sort of do what we want (laughs) speaking of 18th century recipe manuscripts you at the British Library have a wealth of this kind, these kind of resources, right? Well, there's this sort of irony at the British Library, which is that um, although food is obviously strictly forbidden and prohibited in any of our reading rooms, um, and um, you know, it's sort of absent in some ways. Actually, food is probably the subject, the topic which is most present across every single collection in this library. So we have wow. approximately 170 million items that grows at the rate of 14 miles a year. If you were to put that out uh, on shelves, so what? we're growing all the time. <laughs> and when and that's across every sort of format as well. So yes, it's your books, manuscripts, magazines, sound recordings, uh, news, you know, any sort of format that information comes on, we we will have it here. And dating back, you know, as far as the printed and written word goes and in, and in most languages in the world. So in other words, there's a lot of stuff. And when you think about food, because food is the subject of human life, it is the subject of trade, travel, war, migration, business, it is everywhere so across every single collection one way or another there will be food so of course we have the most extraordinary collection of historical cookery books and cookery manuscripts you know completely out of this world but also patents trade literature people's diaries manuscripts everywhere there will be accounts of food so food is woven in and among this incredible collection and one of the things that I love doing is to think about the collections through that lens of food to try and understand more about the collections but about the past history and food's relation to it. I love that it's a lens you can put on like over your glasses like instead of the sunglasses lens put on the food lens. Yeah I have this sort of slightly annoying thing where I think you know we could do away with the whole curriculum and just teach everything through food (laughs) because because you you get to every you know you can definitely do biology you can probably do literature economics. geography economics history obviously yeah. all those things i mean yeah i saw i yeah 
So I, I sort of, I think you. everything should be with food. Oh my God, I fully <laughs> support this. But okay, so back to the question of like, because it is all encompassing, how in the world do you narrow it down? I mean, okay, so coming up for the third, the third season in 2020, have you already started thinking about what those will be? Have you already started reaching out to people? Absolutely. Actually, we're right in the middle of determining the program for 2020. So, so partly it's, um, what are we interested in? What can we do that's interesting? And, and where are the gaps, for instance? And what haven't we done so well last year? So, you know, hands up, I would say last year and the first year, we have not done enough around, um, certainly sort of African diaspora mm. in the UK, uh, different, different countries in Africa and their food. So we are very, very thrilled that we're going to be partnering up with Africa Food London to do events with them and have some speakers for them throughout the season. So partly it's thinking about, OK, what didn't we do? What's been missing? Also, of course, you know, what's on trend? Mm. Uh, how do we do it in a sort of interesting way? Uh, because we don't want to just do the same old. So how can we do it in a new way? And so, in fact, the event that you were involved with, which was um, which you very kindly helped with because I couldn't be there which I was absolutely devastated about uh women in cheese is was sort of thinking about cheese the history of cheese uh, also doing tastings with yes, cheese I was just very important <laughs> very important but through a slightly different lens which is women's relationship to cheese women have had a historically have historically been responsible for producing cheese on farms and then that changed because of industrialization uh, and yet there's been a kind of resurgence of very important cheesemakers who are women some who've kept traditions going from the sort of uh, 50s and still are producing cheese and then new cheesemakers so it's thinking about you know women cheesemakers the kind of politics and practice of that as well as providing people with delicious cheese to eat so trying to think of things in a slightly quirky way if we can you succeed at the quirk hands down <laughs> um, that is an endorsement from the <laughs> queen of quirk <laughs> How did you decide um, on the people who were a part of this Women in Cheese event? Obviously, Bronwyn Percival, who we both know and adore, uh, was the moderator. I cannot think of a better person to have moderated that. Um, but how, how, how do you go about putting together a panel like this? Did you approach Bronwyn first? Did you get the panelists first? I, th I think there's this kind of really simple way to answer it, which is to say we asked Bronwyn uh, and she made these suggestions and we did it in conversation but I think there's a slightly more important point to be made which is that in no way am I or the wonderful programmer Susanna Stevenson who I work with we are not experts around this whole subject and it's really important I think to draw on the expertise mm. of the people who you're inviting and engaging to speak so whenever we're trying to program an event we have a kind of kernel of an idea but we absolutely ask the people that we're we're talking to and inviting you know what would you be interested in talking about who do you think are the interesting people we should be speaking to um, it, it is definitely not the Polly Russell food season <laughs> show. This is really, in a sense, those events are kind of owned by and sort of driven by and end up doing well because of the interests and expertise of the people on the panel. So it's a kind of bit of back and forth, I suppose. How does Dr. Polly Russell keep it quirky? By total fortune, 
being surrounded by people who are fascinating, constantly teaching me things, experts in their field, and being able sometimes to be a midwife to their ideas, uh, being able to find out about their worlds. I think that's how. So it's, it's just being constantly interested. I think your curiosity is definitely at the heart of your quirkiness. <laughs> High five to that. Holly, <laughs> where can people follow you or kind of keep up with all of these incredible things that you're doing? So on Twitter, I'm at Polly Russell one. And on Instagram, I'm the underscore history underscore cook. Follow her, you guys. You don't want to miss what she's up to. Polly, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Thank you. Let's go ahead and introduce the panel, British Libraries Women in Cheese. So this event, Women Cheesemakers Past, Present and Future, has the amazing Bronwyn Percival from Neil's Yard Dairy, who really is a sort of secular saint of cheese, isn't she? I call her my cheese fairy godmother. Yes, she the, she is ex- amazing to talk to about cheese. Um, Mrs. Ruth Kirkham and Carrie Rhymes. Mrs. Ruth Kirkham, who wonderfully came all the way from Lancashire for the event and who makes one of probably the best cheeses it's in epic. the country. It is epic. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And nearly, you know, amazingly nearly stopped producing cheese but for being sort of persuaded by randolph hodgson to carry on thank god yeah, yeah so she makes kirkham's lancashire and then there's a mature kirkham's lancashire so yeah kind of those two options both of which are completely amazing and then carrie rhymes who i have never met but i hear is absolutely fantastic she was lovely yeah so the tragedy of this event, which I was so excited we set up and I was so thrilled, um, was that for some terrible diary clash, which I could not get out of, I was unable to be there on the night. And so thankfully you stepped into the breach and were sort of effectively being me that night, which was so great, Katie. I don't know. I could never fill your shoes, Polly. Very, no, you did. I heard you did. You need to my job, I heard. Anyway, but very, very uh, reassuring. But I have not heard this fantastic conversation, although I saw from Twitter and I've heard from people who were there that it was just electrifying and fascinating. The cheese samples going around did not hurt that situation. <laughs> All right, let's let's listen, shall we? Love to. Welcome to the British Library tonight for Women Cheesemakers Past, Present, Future with Bronwyn Percival of Neil's Yard Dairy and cheesemakers Mrs. Ruth Kirkham and Carrie Rhymes. My name is Susanna Stevenson and I'm one of the cultural event producers here at the library where I have had the absolute pleasure of working on the food season. I've been working with food historian and curator Polly Russell here at the British Library to bring the program of events together um if you've been to some already welcome back um if this is your first then just welcome um the idea of the food season is to use the lens of food to take a look at our collections and the wealth of social and political history that can be found there there's everything from patents to children's books market research data from the 1950s to historical cookbooks and banquet table diagrams of victoria's table um, this year's season features about 26-ish 
talks, tastings and workshops inspired by the library's extensive collections. I'd like to thank the sponsor for this year's season, KitchenAid, for their generous support of the season in what is their 100th anniversary year, which I couldn't believe when I heard it. So now I just want to introduce Bronwyn Percival, who's your host for this evening. Bronwyn is the cheese buyer for Neil's Yard Dairy in London. In addition to working with cheesemakers and the company's maturation team, she works to mobilise collaboration between cheesemakers and the scientific community. She is the co-author of the critically acclaimed... Reinventing the Wheel, Milk, Microbes and the Fight for Cheese. For real cheese, sorry. I hope you enjoy the evening and please welcome Bronwyn Percival and your speakers. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. And uh, it's really delightful to see such a packed house for a discussion of one of my absolute favorite subjects in the world, which is women and cheese and um, how they go together. So um, I, I am absolutely beyond thrilled this evening to be um, sharing the stage with two women, uh, two women cheesemakers who I really admire. Um, the first is Mrs. Ruth Kirkham, who is one of the amazing matriarchs of British cheese. Kirkham's Lancashire has a very special place in my heart. It is the only cheese that my husband Francis and I served at our wedding. And I think in many ways it is it approaches the absolute perfect cheese um, for its balance and its complexity and its sheer beauty. And I'm really excited that we're going to be able to taste a few of those later and be in conversation with Ruth about the way in which this cheese was made um, in her youth and then as across her career. Um, she is one of my cheese idols. <laughs> and then we also have an, another amazing uh, woman cheesemaker, Carrie Rhymes, who is from Wales and who, um, unlike uh, Ruth Kirkham, has been making cheese for, for less than a decade, but even in that short time has managed to make some really stunning and fantastic cheese. Her lactic sheep's cheese called Brevi Bach is one of the newest cheeses that we're selling at Neil's Yard Dairy, and it is a very exciting cheese as well, full with sort of technical polish, depth of flavor, and milk that comes from an incredibly interesting and unusual herd of sheep, which I'm sure she's going to tell us a lot about in terms of their farming and um, what, what questions that farming in the 21st century might raise. So it is my, uh, my duty, I'm told, to spend the first 10 or so minutes trying to set the stage for this conversation of British cheese and, um, and women's roles. And that's quite a tall order when you think about it. Um, and so I'm just going to do a little, bit of a, a little bit of a deep dive. Um, but rest assured, soon we will be in conversation with Ruth and Carrie, and it will all get much more exciting. <laughs> I think... The thing to think about with cheese, no matter where it's made, is that it's the solution to a problem. You have perishable, heavy milk, and particularly in places where you don't have refrigeration at your fingertips, you're going to have a big problem if you don't have a way to preserve that milk quite quickly after your animals have been milked. It will start to sour on its own and go off within just a few hours in a, in a warm environment. And really, cheese making was created to solve that problem, that here you can take a very perishable product and turn it into something that, is, that can be kept, depending on the style of cheese you're making, from anywhere to weeks 
from weeks to years. And um, the, other, the other problem that cheese making solves is one of volume. So cheese in general, if you have a, a liter of milk, you're probably going to get about 100 grams of cheese out of that milk, again, depending on the style of cheese you're making. But essentially, you're taking away 90% of the volume of that milk and saving the most nutritious components in a really compact, robust packet that you can set aside for later um, or transport off the farm, as the case may be. Um, so... Cheese is the solution to not only those, that fundamental problem, but also the problems of your place. And if we look at the classic British cheeses of Europe, we can see that the cheeses of alpine regions look completely different than the cheeses of the French river valleys. So high mountain alpine cheeses were made by the cowherds when they were up at the top of these mountains for the summer. The women were back behind in the lowlands, and they had cows to look after, but they also had cheese to make. So these cheeses are cheeses that are made really quickly using a lot of heat and they turn out to be, you can make an alpine cheese like a Gruyere in about an hour. It's very, very fast. And then those cheeses are really good for setting aside and ripening up and you can bring them down the hill at your leisure. Um, conversely, the cheeses like lactic cheeses that are going to look a lot like, um, you'll recognize Kerry's cheese is a lactic cheese. Those tiny little high moisture cheeses are, um, they come from a completely different social and climatic system where you have these farms where um, the goats or the, the animals who are there are around for their, they don't travel up into the mountains during the summer. They stay put. The whole family is together. The husband will take care of the animals and the wife makes those tiny delicate cheeses over the course of the day. And so today when we think of British cheese, we can't forget that these classic styles of British cheese also were evolved to solve the problems of the British place. And um, today we think of these British cheeses not as feminine cheeses, but as very masculine cheeses. We talk about the cheddar boys, the group of cheddar makers who are known for their really sort of robust figures, and um, they, you know, many of them are sort of ex-military, and the cheese making is essentially the equivalent of this physical assault course. Um, and, you know, within the, within the British cheese making process, these uh, cheddars and cheshires, for example, there are plenty of opportunities to sort of display your manly valor. And having helped out making a few of these cheeses from time to time, I have every single time sort of um, had to step back from the bat because it was simply too physical hard. There are huge amounts of weight, cur weights of curd to lift, to stack repeatedly, um, large vats to be bending over and working from a height, heavy molds to fill and press, and probably a vat of boiling water to dip your um, uh, materials into to sanitize them before you start working um, as well. And just, just they're pretty tough cheeses to make. And they're done usually at speed. So pe people are working really quickly and it seems quite a, you know, it, it's, it, is, it is a physical assault course. But when you look at the way those British cheeses were made 100 or 200 years ago, they actually evolved in almost exactly the opposite direction of the way that they look now. These were farmer's wives' cheeses, and they were made slowly and gently over the course of an entire day. And I think 
that transition is one of the most fundamentally interesting things about British cheeses today, that how are these cheeses, which we think of as man's cheeses, and you know, even Kirkham's Lancashire is now no longer made by Mrs. Kirkham, it's made by her son, Graham, who's a pretty strong guy as well. Yeah. And um, how did the identity of these cheeses change over a comparatively short period from something that was the woman's reserve and, and something that was woven into the fabric of running a household to something that's done by really buff, macho men. Um, and I think we're going to explore a little bit of that tonight. So British cheeses, if we cast our eyes back 200 years, say, were made in dairies that were often adjoining the house. And it was a long, slow process. It took from the beginning of the morning until late at night. And why, why were British cheeses made in this way? One of the things that Britain's environment really um, struggles with is it's very wet. And that wetness means that within the milk, there are certain microbes that, if they're allowed to grow unchecked, can cause um, physical problems within the cheeses. The cheese can blow up. But if you make the cheese in a long and slow way, you get lots of acidity, and you also get these very dry cheeses. And the combination of acidity and dryness is the perfect solution to the problem of that British climate and that British milk. So it's no coincidence that these British cheeses are a bit more acid and that they're generally hard and dry, because actually the climate has dictated that we make milk here that's best suited to that style of cheese. So to help us get in touch with this lost world of, of cheese making hundreds of years ago in the British Isles, I wanted to introduce you to a quote, to a couple of quotes from some British agricultural writers of the late 18th century, William Marshall and uh, later on Josiah Twomley. And I kind of love these guys because they're in their own way, even though they're writing about cheese and agriculture, which could be quite dry subjects, they, they wax poetic about what they observe on their travels around the districts of, of the UK um, and observe and try to codify and write down how cheese was being made. So William Marshall in 1796 wrote about the dairy as this almost mystical female space um, where men were really consigned to roles at the side, at the sidelines rather than in the middle. So he says, the manufacturing of cheese is not like the cultivation of lands. That is a public employment, open to anyone who travels across the site of cultivation. Cheese is a private manufactory, a craft, a mystery, secluded from the public eye. And what may appear extraordinary, the minutiae are seldom familiar even to the master of the dairy in which they're practiced. The dairy room is consecrated to the sex, and it is generally understood to require some interest and address to gain full admission to its rights. So it's hard to imagine a space more feminine than what William Marshall was describing. And one of the fundamental aspects that allowed women to make these cheeses was the question of size. That essentially these cheeses were no smaller than they are today, but the amount made on a single dairy was much, much smaller. So a dairy with just 40 or 50 cows, which is the number that was milked um, in the days when... Um, first began. Exactly. Yeah. Would, would have been considered incredibly large at the turn of the 19th century. Um, milking would have been seasonal, so it was only done during the summer months. And um, so if you think about it, the largest dairies uh, would have only been making one or two cheeses a day, and in some cases, even less, maybe even one cheese every several days with the collected curd from, from several days, which, again, we're going to talk about in a moment. So jo Josiah Twomley was a person who traveled around and tasted cheeses at different farms and selected the ones that he wanted to buy and sell in the cities. And he says... 
The business of cheesemaking has been in the hands of the women hitherto, except in Cheshire, where a large quantity of cheese is made. A man is employed as an assistant, the weight of a large Cheshire cheese being too great to be wrought by a woman. It is common in large dairies to meet with cheeses 120 or even 140 pounds a cheese, which requires considerable strength to manage. So men, they could come into the dairy, but only to help turn the heavy cheeses. (laughs) And... Marshall says, it's customary, even in the largest dairies, for the ostensible manager, whether mistress or maid, to perform the whole operation of making cheese, except the last breaking of the curds and the vatting, which means putting those curds into the molds, in which she has an assistant. But this, in a dairy of 80 or 100 cows, is too great labor for any woman. It is painful to see it. In one instance in this district, a man was employed in this laborious department, and in a large dairy, it is certainly man's work. So it's interesting. My hypothesis of one of the key factors that trend, that made what was essentially an exclusively female domain into something that today is exclusively male is the fact that these dairies have ramped up so much in size over that amount of time. Most of today's cheddar farms are making 10 times as much cheese as the largest dairies were 200 years ago. And you can imagine, in the largest of those dairies 200 years ago, it was already a hard job that was pushing at what could be accomplished um, by the single woman of the house who was making the cheese. Multiply that by 10, and you've got to parachute in the, uh, the commandos. Um, and so today we see larger farms with more cows, sort of three to four times as many cows are completely normal on um, farms these days. And we're also getting a lot more milk per cow. A normal cow today would probably be giving about five times as much milk in a single lactation as a cow would have been uh, 200 years ago. They've been that much improved. And I think it's also important to recognize that these uh, dairies long ago in the British Isles were not just making cheese, that actually farms were producing a multitude of different products. They were making veal, they were making butter from the uh, cream that was drawn from the whey that was the byproduct of making cheese. They were selling pork, which was fed on the whey, also as a byproduct of cheese making. And then finally, they were making cheese as well. So again, this was part of a much more multi-dimensional and multi-output system. And some of that milk would have also been going to the calves to feed them to make the veal. So, you know, this very, what we think of as a very modern idea of these cow-calf dairies or these calf-at-foot dairies where the, um, the calves are kept with the cows and drink part of their milk as they're growing. Actually, that's not such a novel idea at all. People were practicing that commonly a long time ago because that was the only way to raise calves um, for veal and for meat. Um, so, basically... When we look around at the cheeses sold by Neil Dairy, the cheeses that claim the longest continuity of tradition are the cheeses of matriarchs. We had Mrs. Montgomery, who was making cheddar at Montgomery's, um, and who um, the the, I would say, the founder of Neil Dairy, Randolph Hodgson, when he first went out to the farms, she was the one who was making the cheddar, and then she would pop it in the back of his truck for him when he came around to collect it um, at the end of the day. Mrs. Appleby of Appleby's Cheshire, uh, Mrs. Keene from Keene's Cheddar, all of these women were responsible for sort of dairying dynasties that have continued all the way to the present day, although in each of these cases, they've been taken over by the men of the family, which again is a very interesting, is a very interesting observation. And finally, Mrs. Kirkham, who is 
our own sort of um, august cheese matriarch who has come to London for the first time in 21 years, I might add, to be with us this evening. And so it gives me incredible pleasure to welcome her here and to say that, you know, this is really, Kirkham's Lancashire is, is my favorite cheese, and I'm really interested and looking forward to hearing some of the revelations she has to share with us. Um, to start, I'll say she began making cheese on the farm in 1978, having learned the cheese making from her mother, but really also been thrown in at the deep end. Um, and she also built a successful cheese business over the same period where many others were giving up um, cheese making just to sell liquid milk or to get out of farming altogether. Um, Neil Jardari has been selling Mrs. Kirkham's cheese since the very early 1980s. And today, um, Mrs. Kirkham's Lancashire is the only remaining Lancashire cheese made exclusively from raw milk that is produced on the farm where those cows are milked. And so I would say with total confidence that this is a national treasure that we need to cherish. So one of the things as I was chatting with Ruth this afternoon that I was surprised to learn was that Mrs. Kirkham's Lancashire has not always been called Mrs. Kirkham's Lancashire. How did your cheese get its name? Uh, well, it was Randolph Hodgson, wasn't it? What christened it that? But um, when I first started making the cheese um, 41 years ago, uh, we sold it. The milk marketing board was going in those days. And um, my mum made cheese before me and sold it um, to the milk marketing board. And it was number 39. Um, <laughs> and... Um, uh, my mum made it during the war. I mean, um, my grandma and granddad on both sides made cheese. But during the war, everyone made the milk into the cheese. There was uh, no dairies in those days. So if, if they milked the cows, they would make it into cheese. And um, so my mum, um, she made it for a few years. Um, I think there was three of us born just after the war. I was born in '45, And um, I think my next brother would be born. And... Um, uh, she carried on making it then, and then she had a little break, and she started again in um, '78, and made it for eight years, and then I took it over uh, when Mum finished, and I took it over because we only had a very small farm, uh, John and I, and um, I think it was only 30 some acres then, and it was either um, give up farming or diversify, so. Um, I didn't particularly want to make cheese because I knew mum, it was, you know, it was hard for my mum to make. Uh, it's not easy work and very tying, uh, 365 days a year. But um, uh, my husband said, John said, if I, if I made it while I was 50, you know, and then we would stop. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, I uh, started to make it then. And... Um, it was really, when I look back, you know, it was hard work, but it fit in with your family life because, um, you know, I'd, Graham would be, who's taking it over now, he would be eight or nine, Angela was six, and Katie was eight months when I started making the cheese. And, um, you know, when I look back, you know, Katie, my youngest daughter, who uh, teaches nursing, you know, once you've left the, 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 your house, you know, you can't carry on with your little jobs, but when, when you're... Um, at home all the time you can nip in and put a load of washing in and hang a load of washing out in between the farm uh, you know making your cheese and helping on the farm and um, so it did fit in well with family life and looking back now even though I was really busy you know I was always there for the children which was you know look, looking back now I'm really thankful for that um, 
So I started, um, as I said, 41 years ago in just my little dairy, which was before we um, started, it was just a little pig hole and a little stable. But we had it tiled out and made lovely. And then I started making the cheese. And in those days, it was all sold to the milk board. And we waxed them we, 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 to make great big cheese. Well, they were £50 in weight. And um, we waxed them in those days and they were sent to the milk board. And a grader would come round um, every fortnight and grade the cheese, and um, which was quite hard work because um, with having the three children, we used to like everything absolutely scrubbed out and spotless for the cheese grader coming. So I often used to put the children to bed, and then I would go out and scrub perhaps well midnight. <laughs> and then um, this cheese grader he was called Bill Lloyd. Can you all hear me? I'm speaking right into my. You're wondering all right. Um, he was actually a retired airline pilot, and for some reason, he thought the roads were busy um, 41 years ago, and he used to come at 4 o'clock in the morning. I think by then, there was about four cheesemakers left in Lancashire. And, um, and so silly old me, you know, I was, uh, you know, I didn't say no, don't come at that time, and I liked to see him grade all the cheese. So I would only be going to bed at midnight, then I would be up again at 4 o'clock in the morning <laughs> to see the cheese go graded. And um, there used to be uh, three grades, um, super fine, fine, and then graded cheese. And I used to um, love them to get them all in the super fine. Um, I've always sort of put everything into my cheese making. Um, I had to get everything right. Everything had to be, it had to be good all the time. And I used to get quite a lot of awards for it being so consistent. But... Um, I used to milk the cows as well. I didn't think anyone could milk the cows as good as I could and get them clean and, and then the, the cheese. And I didn't like anyone helping me because I didn't think anyone could do it as good as I could. And if I did have any problems, I used to, you know, I couldn't rest till I got the problems sorted out. So, you know, I like to keep them absolutely spot on and get them all in the super fine grade. Yeah. And there, there was another... Um, after Bill Lloyd retired, there was another man called Malcolm Webster who came round and he wasn't just quite as... Uh, he didn't come as early, <laughs> nine o'clock. But he fit in well with um, the family life because um, I could take the children to school. Once I'd got the rennet in and it was setting, I would then have an hour. You know, you had to warm your milk up, get the rennet in after I'd milked, and then I would have an hour to spare to get the children's breakfast and take them to school. And then I would nip back and uh, get a bit of breakfast while I cut the curd. Um, and then you just carried on, your day just went on. But, you know, it was, it's quite a slow process, is Lancashire cheese. And depending on the weather, in, in the warmer weather, the curds would go on faster. And in the colder weather, you had to give them more time, um, you know, to mature. And um, so it was, um, yeah, it fit in well with family life. Um, and, um, you know, looking back, you know, there were really good days in those days. There wasn't all this paperwork of today. Um, it was just a way of life, really. It was, and it, it was good, yeah. And then um, the milk board packed up. I think it was 1991, and um, that was when... Uh, I'm sure we started to sell Neil's Yard Dairies before then. It must have been earlier than that. must have been earlier than that. We were going to pack up. They said that every cheesemaker had to... Um, pasteurised and um, there was a lot of Lancashire cheese be being made in the bigger dairies 
and we thought if we pasteurise, with cheese would be no different than a, an ordinary dairy. So we said we would pack up making the cheese and um, whether there was a little bit of something in a paper, I don't know how, but such as Randolph Hodgson and um, there was a Peter Pugson from Buxton, James Aldridge, um, Ian Mellis from Edinburgh. They all came to see me and they said, carry on making your cheese, we'd love to buy it from you. And in those days, they used to come onto the farm and pick it up off the farm. And it was nice, we had a good relationship with everyone and it, it was really nice. And that's what kept us going. But it was Randolph, really, what um, spread the word around and, uh, you know, really got us, kept us going in business. And so all these years later, you know, we're still, still going. So uh, that's been really good. And um, um, what else? That's, that's Is great. Is that all yeah. good? Not enough? Yeah. I think yeah. you're all looking very hungry. <laughs> so let's take a little pause right now and get some Lancashire cheese passed around. Now, the way this is going to work is we have cheese on plates, and those plates have been helpfully divided in half. And we have, we've given you big pieces of cheese. The downside of that is it probably obscures which one is young and which is mature. It's, uh, it's quite, quite intuitive, I think, that it's The young one is, is probably in larger pieces. Pass it down. Take one piece of each. You've got your napkin there to help balance it. And um, let's, uh, there, and there should be plenty for everyone. So um, look out for some Lancashire coming your way. <laughs> so maybe we'll talk a little bit about the making of Lancashire cheese while these, uh, while these samples come around so we don't lose any time. Um, Lancashire is quite an unusual cheese because unlike a cheddar or a Cheshire or a Wensleydale, it's actually made not just from one day's milk, but from multiple days milk. And so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what makes Lancashire unique in that way. Um, well, years ago when, um, you know, the farms were small, they would have to sort of get a two-day curd or a three-day curd to get enough curds together to make one of the large cheeses. So that was how it got to be made um, from either a two- or a three-day curd. Uh, whereas cheddar is just made from one, isn't it? And made the same day. And yeah. You know, pass, uh, continuing on that, on that point, which is really an interesting one, I have a book that I got about... Uh, it's a little guide to Lancashire cheesemaking written in 1925, and it talks about a recipe for Lancashire cheese and then small cheese. And as I was reading the book, I was like, why do you need a different recipe for small cheese? That's really odd. But actually, when you read inside, Lancashire is the cheese that's made from multiple days of curd mixed together. And small cheese is the cheese where you would just be making one cheese from one day's curd and come up with a smaller cheese as a result. Mm. So clearly, as late as the 1920s, people who were on such small farms that they couldn't even make a whole one of those large 50-pound cheeses a day were, were, had the option of carrying their curd over to make one cheese every three days, or they could make small cheese, which would be single-day cheese, which were commensurately smaller, which mm. I thought was just mm. fascinating. Mm. Mm. Now, of course, today, how many cheeses are made at, uh, per day? Maybe about 20-something? Yeah, like 20, that? 24. Which, yeah. in the great scheme of things, it sounds a lot bigger, but actually, in the great scheme of things for cheese production, that's still relatively small. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. And they're made into the medium cheese now, where we used to make all large yes. at the beginning. And um, when we started selling to Neil's Yard Dairies, he, started, he suggested that we, um, he wouldn't have a wax cheese in his shop. He wanted us to butter them. And the old-fashioned way when Mum made, one, made them was she used to cover them with either lard or butter. 
you know, during the war. And then they thought this great thing had come out when they could wax the cheese, and it was like a great big deep fat fryer, and you wound your cheese down. But it was um, quite, an, you know, when, when we started buttering, it was really different, and I was a little bit worried about it. But it was marvellous because then the cheese could breathe. So instead of the mould going into the cheese, you know, when, when they're waxed, if they got a little bit of damage, mould would go into the cheese, whereas when, when they buttered, they kept much better and they were much easier to look after. So it was a wonderful um, thing to, after, you know, to be able to do. Uh, and it made our cheese making a lot easier at that end of it. And the cheese kept beautifully. You know, you could keep them for 12 months and they would still have no mould or anything in them. Um, it was really good, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because on this plate, we actually have the two ends of that spectrum. The larger piece is a cheese that's about nine weeks old. I think it was made on the 6th of March. And um, that is actually from one of the few large cheeses that gets made these days. We buy the large cheeses to sell young in our shops. So a small percentage of them go down this route. And I really love that sort of buttery succulence that I think is helped by that really large format. Mm -hmm. um, what When you eat the cheese young... What, uh, what age do you prefer to eat it at? Um, well, that one is about nine weeks old, did you say? Mm. Well, I, I thought that was, you know, it was, it's got enough flavour, hasn't it, really, for a lot of people. Um, when it's too young, it's too curdy, isn't it? It needs to sort of get some maturity behind it. Um, but it still has, you know, quite a mellow flavour. But still, um, when cheese is unpasteurised, uh, the flavours are much stronger in a cheese what's unpasteurised because it's natural and it keeps uh, making all these lovely flavours. And when you've eaten them, um, a good cheese always leaves a long-lasting... Uh, you know, it lingers a long time in your mouth. And um, unpasteurised cheese, I think, you know, uh, when it's pasteurised, it has a much shorter uh, lingering taste in your mouth. Yeah, so... Uh, Has yeah. everyone had a chance to taste the mature cheese as well? So this is a cheese that was made in May of last year, and it's been maturing on our shelves at the Borough Market shop. And so this is a cheese that's relatively new to us as well. Up until just a few years ago, we only sold young Kirkham's Lancashire. And, um, but we'd heard about the many faces of Lancashire up north where, you know, there's a whole connoisseurship of Lancashire cheese and people talk about creamy and crumbly and tasty and all the different, all the different manifestations of these, the flavors that Lancashire can produce. You don't need any other cheese than Lancashire. You can just have 20 different kinds of Lancashire. Um, and so we started, bring, we, we brought these cheeses down to London and we started working on seeing whether we could mature them ourselves. And we kept some in our specially climate-controlled arches where it was a low temperature and high humidity and all of the things that we're told are supposed to be optimal for maturing cheese. And then we kept another one uh, in our Burra shop, which is a little bit warmer, a little bit drier, what we thought of as a little bit harsher conditions. And then we finally kept a third one in the office above the computer server where it was really warm and our accounts team turned it and rubbed it every day and complained loudly about the smells that were coming from this really cheese that was going off before our very eyes. But what we found when we came to tasting all three of them side by side that it was that it was a complete Goldilocks situation. And that slightly warmer temperature and slightly drier conditions in that shop had really allowed the cheese to breathe, as you were saying, and allowed some of that extra moisture to get out of it and created the most savory, rich, and round cheese. And, I mean, it, then it was very interesting to hear about how these cheeses might have been matured in the living room 
mm. um, sometimes when, uh, when you were making them before? Yes, um, we didn't have, it was only quite a, well, a very small dairy and as we got a little bit bigger and we hadn't room to store them, um, I used to take them to my mum's and dad's, which was about a couple of miles away. And, and they actually used to store them in, their, um, in the kitchen where there was an arga. <laughs> and, um, you know, so they were kept really warm and they had all the cheese shells round. And uh, my dad used to love buttering and turn, uh, rubbing them up and turning them. He used to turn them every day for me. And Randolph would come along and he loved to buy them from, uh, uh, you know, out of the kitchen, basically. <laughs> but it, it made them absolutely beautiful cheese. It did. And it was the warmth. It's sort of a natural... You know, we tend to... Everything has to be sort of done by the book now, hasn't it? And kept at a certain temperature, kept quite low and things. But really, it was the warmth. You know, cheese and curd, it doesn't look like to be starved at all. It's like a living thing. And it just loves the warmth. It really um, uh, loves being, you know, kept in a lot more natural conditions, really. I mean, years ago... Um, they used to take uh, take them on um, on horse and carts into Preston, into the um, market hall, and they would just put these great big cheese on beds of straw. And I used to wonder how they uh, used to keep them in the heat. Yeah, there was no refrigeration, um, you know, no laws, wasn't in those days. They were, <laughs> <laughs> but they must, I'm sure they must have been running because you know we use a culture in it now, and they only, they didn't have cultures in those days. They only uh, thing they had um, to make the cheese get some acidity in it would they'd love a new calf cow, and um, you know the beast milk would be like a, you know give it more acidity, and um, you know make them as they could eat you know keep them a lot longer. But uh, so it's come a long way. But um, um, sort of you know the natural warmth is. Uh, do you find them that, that when they're warmer? Slightly warmer, they, they, they come on much nicer. Absolutely, you get this savory, this savory mm. impression that I think really complements that buttery aroma mm. that is mm. so present in, in the young cheese. And mm. you know, there have been certain batches that I think have gone a little bit off the rails, probably down to hot summers at Borough, or you know, our temperature is mm. getting a little bit too high, or possibly, you know, and that it's 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 a real tightrope. And I think we've learned over time when we're when we're at the farm and selecting cheeses to zero in on the batches that we think have the most potential to stay the course. If there's a cheese that seems very soft and stodgy and wet, we won't choose that one to put aside because quite likely that's going to be one of the wild ones. Whereas we're looking for something that's maybe balanced and stable but doesn't take the roof of your mouth off. Mm. Mm. Do you think that we've succeeded with this cheese? I do, definitely. <laughs> definitely, yes. So I haven't paid her to say that. This is... <laughs> At the time when you were making cheese, it strikes me, looking at the overall kind of cheese trends, that many other farms were giving up that practice of making cheese on the farm, either in favor of selling liquid milk to be made into cheese or sold as liquid milk elsewhere, or to give up farming altogether. Um, why do you think that so many of them stopped, and why did you carry on? Um, I think it's dedication, really, yeah. Um, I was sort of... Um, well, I'm in the same in, in, in everything, really. I always I give everything 120%. And um, I didn't mind it taking me all day. There was a farm just a couple of miles from me who made cheese. 
But it didn't matter what the weather was doing, whether if it was really cold and the, your curds were a little bit slow, they were always out of the dairy by one o'clock. Whereas, you know, I would sort of, it didn't matter if it took me well four o'clock in the afternoon to finish doing the, breaking the curds and letting it come on naturally um, to reach, you know, the point where I, I knew it was right. Um, so I think really it's, um, I want, you know, I, I enjoyed, you know, making good cheese and I, and I, I was never bothered about, um, I never entered any competitions or anything, I was never bothered about any fame or anything. I just wanted people to really enjoy the cheese when they ate it, you know, and that was my biggest um, uh, uh, wish, uh, that it was, you know, enjoyed and, um, and I like to keep it, you know, really consistent so that it was, you know, good all the time. So I think it's, it was dedication, really, what kept us going. And um, it, it's easy to take an easy option, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And if Graham hadn't come along, I mean, um, you know, I couldn't carry on now by any means. So um, I've been lucky that, you know, Graham, my son, he was a mechanic for quite a few years. And then my husband had a, a double hip operation when he was 52. And so Graham said he would help us um, on the farm and with the cheese. And he, he fell in love with it and never went back to mechanicing again. <laughs> so, uh, and he absolutely loves it. He's as, he's as um, you know, as dedicated as what I am, as I was, definitely, is Graham. He's very enthusiastic about it. And he's carried it on, you know, wanting to make, you know, as equally a good a cheese as what I did. Um, I think he's taken, you know, he's, he's learnt a lot from me, you know, about being very fussy. Um, <laughs> And, you know, and that's what keeps the cheese good. You have to be absolutely on the ball with it all um, and keep it right. And it is hard work, but it's well worth it. It's very rewarding uh, in the end. It is. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it strikes me that Graham does have a lot of the same sensitivity to the curd that yeah. you must have taught him. Yeah. And one of the things that you're best known for within the cheese community and that I personally can attest to is the quality of your baking. Your ginger cake is the stuff of legend. It's really amazing, almost as good as the cheese. And when I asked you for the recipe a few years ago, I was really interested that what you handed me wasn't just a list of ingredients, times, and temperatures. And it made me think a little bit more about how you make cheese, because there were a lot of notes in the margins about looking at things and poking at things and using your senses to drive the production of this cake making, which was really, really kind of unusual for me because that's not how I approach baking cakes. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that approach to baking and how it informs your ch uh, approach to cheese making or vice versa. Um. I think it's because I'm really fussy. Um, <laughs> and I like, well, I like everything to be perfect, actually. Um, I'm not happy unless everything. And there is, you know, like baking, like the cheese making, there is a lot of tweaking on, on you know, um, with the cheese making on what, you know, what temperature it is outside, what time of the year it is, um, the type of milk, what's coming in. You know, there's a lot to it. It isn't just um, you get up and just make your cheese. You know, some people think anybody can make good cheese, but you can't, you know, if you want to keep it really, really good. Um, every day, your cheese is different. And even when I, um, I stopped helping up in the dairy, which isn't all that long ago, I was still learning. You never cease to learn. You keep learning. And it's the same with your baking, really. As you keep doing more and more, you know, uh, baking, 
you know, it's just doing sort of little things. You know, if, an, if your eggs aren't quite big enough, put an extra egg in. It's just going that little bit of the extra, you know, uh, extra mile to get a really good uh, cake. So, and I'm only happy when I've got them perfect, which I, what I did with the cheese. You do, yeah. consistently. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then I was just wondering, did you ever enter your cheese into any competitions? <laughs> no, never. But Randolph did. <laughs> yeah. And that was, um, I think it was 1996. And um, he rang me about four o'clock in the afternoon one day and um, said he wanted to speak to me. And I thought, oh, gosh, there's something wrong with the cheese. As he found a bristle or something out of a screen. You know, I thought, what, what, you know. <laughs> anyway, he, he was worried because he'd entered um, a quarter of one of my great big ones um, in the International Cheese Show. And um, it had won um, first prize out of 400 cheeses. And uh, he, uh, he was a bit worried about telling me because he never said, could he enter it? <laughs> <laughs> because um, he knew I, I'm not a competition... You know, I'm, I'm not one for entering anything. I, I'm not that type of a person. And he'd entered it. And uh, so my first words to him was, was it, did it win fair and square? You know, because I think there's a lot of things goes on in these competitions. <laughs> and, um, and he said it had been judged by 16 different judges. It had kept going on and being judged and judged. And he said, you know, could I come down to the presentation? But I said, no, I hadn't had my rollers in and I had nothing to wear. <laughs> and, and I had to milk the cows. <laughs> so there was no way. But there was um, a chap at Ramsbottom then. He used to buy my cheese called Ramsbottom Victuallers. And um, they had a little presentation there a week or two later, which was nice. And um, they said, there was an an article in the paper about me, and I don't know who put it in, but they said they were going to send the mayor's car for me. And I said I would rather go on my bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) Which I haven't got a bicycle, but I just didn't want to go in the mayor's car. It would be about 25 miles, perhaps, to Ramsbottom. (laughs) I said I'd rather go the day before on my bike. (laughs) But uh, but it was very nice, it was. But who should give me the... um, You'll remember, anybody remember Des Barnes after Coronation Street? He presented me with uh, a lovely silver plate, and I've got it... And, um, you know, it was an absolutely wonderful win. It was, it was um, uh, you know, really good, a really good booster uh, to the business. I mean, we didn't really make enough cheese in those days uh, to go around everyone. Everybody wanted to buy my cheese. And it was hard because then it sort of brought a lot more people onto the scene who'd never heard about me. So, um, so but it was nice. It was a real event. Um, you know, something I'll never forget that. It was, it was really lovely. Yeah. So, but Graham, he's more of a competition man, isn't he? And just <laughs> he likes that. And he's, and he's won a up, few yeah. prizes since, hasn't he? And he's thrilled to bits. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it wasn't, Graham's different, a lot different than what I am. <laughs> Very yeah. humble. Thank you so much, Ruth. I really appreciate it. So next we have Kerry Rhymes, who is in, 
first came to my attention when I had heard tell from our team at Covent Garden that this very quiet lady had come in and brought a sample of a cheese that she had made herself. And whenever I, whenever I hear about people bringing in samples of cheese that they've made themselves, I always sort of shiver and wonder what monstrosity is about to come through our door. But actually, when um, they sounded quite optimistic about it, and when I tasted it, I was really surprised because it was... It was beautifully made, and it was quite unusual. It was in the style of a French sort of mountain cheese, um, but not a hard-cooked one. It was almost a mirror image of a British-style cheese, um, and made by um, Carrie, who had spent several years working um, at different cheese farms around France on her way to becoming a cheesemaker, and who now is sort of one of our one of our key cheesemakers of lactic cheeses with her Breviba. So I guess my first question to you is, where Ruth represents a long tradition of farming and cheesemaking in a specific place, you arrived at cheesemaking through a career change. And it sounds as if, actually, unlike combining your cheesemaking with child-rearing, um, your son leaving home instigated your foray into the world of cheese. So can you tell us about what prompted that decision to go and make cheese? Well, certainly, yeah. I'm talking about, yeah. Um, I mean, sitting here listening, listening, um, listening to Ruth, and I have severe sort of um, cheese childhood envy because, <laughs> you know, to have, to have been brought up in that would, would have been just uh, um, um, so good. But, um, no, this, this, this wasn't how I was brought up at all. I mean, um, uh, I was brought up in the um, um, West Devon, which really wasn't known for its cheese-making um, at all. I, I mean, I imagine if you went far enough back, then cheese would have been made. I feel absolutely sure about that. But... Um, in my childhood, in the 60s and the 70s, it was very much known for its clotted cream and, um, um, and milk puddings. We were just down the road from the, uh, the, uh, the, the Ambrosia factory, and at that time, all, all the milk went, went to um, um, Ambrosia. And, um, and I think just as you were saying at that time, that uh, you know, we had a small family farm, um, and my dad, I think, had all of um, 18 cows, and we had a small flock of sheep, and couple of pigs and chickens and this this was a at the time was a pretty good living and but uh it during during the 70s and i think it possibly happened at different times in different parts of the country i think now having moved to wales i gather it happened a little bit later in wales but certainly it was the early 70s in devon and um so people either had to diversify like you or uh or intensify or get out and mostly around us farmers intensified and uh they went from their 18 cows up firstly up to 40 and 50, which at that time, ooh, 50. And of course now that seems small, really small fry, doesn't it? And then numbers have um, uh, expanded hugely. But uh, my dad decided that he, he, um, he didn't want to do that and he wanted to get out. And, um, and this, was, this, this was really hard at the time. I, I, you know, I was in my early teenage years and had just found an interest in the cows and was, you know, was going out and helping him. And um, I'd named all the cows. Ooh, yeah. And, you know, was helping with the milking and um, so on. And, and my mother was pretty upset too. And there were pretty major rows went on that time. But uh, in the end, it was decided that she would keep a couple of cows. All, all, all the rest would be sold. But it was definitely up to her. She was going to have to milk them and uh, look after them, deal with the milk and so on. So, she, um, um, and she did. She did. And, you know, and did that very well. And um, we kept carbs and 
and, and we carried on the um, a tradition of uh, clotted cream. I really remember we, in 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 the um, larder at the back, there would be two or three bowls of cream being set, and then every night, one bowl would be religiously put on the on the cool side of the agar, and you know the cream would slowly and gradually cook overnight, and then we'd take the bowl back, and then it was up to us as kids to go along with a slotted spoon and skim off the cream, and you had to do it in such a way so you'd end up with a nice smooth patch at the end so we were we got quite well reasonably skilled at that was some and some but um but this all led to really a lot of a lot of um, leftover milk and we, we gave a lot of the skim milk back to the calves but there was still milk left over and um so the, the obvious thing seemed well come on let's have a go at making some cheese and um you know, without without the um, um, and tradition of Lancashire, so we uh, resorted to um, the the uh, the farmhouse fair book of I think 1947, which gives all sorts of lovely recipes in there. I nothing mean, from you know the cooking of a calf's head to the making of an ointment for verrucas or something. But anyway, we <laughs> we 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 picked out the uh, the cheese recipes, and Julie found some cake tins and banged holes in them, and. Uh, and, you know, followed what we thought, you know, was reasonably accurately. And uh, it really wasn't very good. I tell you, it was pretty dire stuff. Um, the, 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 the only cheese that really did work well was when, when the bowls of skim milk um, that had been left on the side just sort of naturally... Um, 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 naturally soured. I mean, some of them soured pretty awfully, but occasionally they soured really, really nicely, and we transferred the curd into a, a big muslin bag and hung it up and uh, and then let it drain and then mixed it with salt and chopped chives and we made our own. So that, that was probably my, my first experience of cheese that was semi-decent. It still wasn't brilliant because it was not only um, skim milk, but it was cooked skim milk as well so you can probably well understand how our how why our hard cheeses didn't really work out very well i think we did eventually you know start mixing it with fresh milk and that improved it but i, I really would not recommend that but it um i think for me as a child it sort of started off you know well why why wasn't it working and uh, the the sort of mystery of it all really came through and i think in your quote from um was it William Wallace? I think that actually, yeah, mm-hmm. that that absolutely rings true. That was, you know, there was in my sort of teenage brain there was something going on that didn't quite seem fair. You know, why couldn't we make it work? And we really wanted to investigate it. But um, of, uh, of course, at that time, you know, other things were going on, and the the, the sort of environmental movement was getting going, and um, ecology was becoming quite a big thing, and that and seeing you know the farms around us getting sort of gobbled up and and as the the daring enterprises intensified there was large amounts of fertilizer being put on the land that old grasslands were being ploughed up and and I, uh, my my sort of childhood idyll was being broken up in front of my eyes you know and this i found that, that, that this was also a, a, a big influence on me and in the end i went off to to study ecology at um, um at university and that carried on with a, um, a, um, a career eventually in Wales with the, with the Nature Conservancy Council, and which then turned into the Countryside Council for Wales. And, and I got, uh, sort of progressed a bit as a, a bit of a specialism in, in, in species-rich grassland, which, which was great. And um, 
you know, learnt a lot and saw a huge amount, but always at the back of my mind, you know, we seem to think that we were dealing with this as a sort of museum piece rather than it actually being used. And uh, so it, it, it never quite sat properly with me. So um, when my son Patrick um, left home, um, I mean, looking back, it was really a sort of a, a, something to do to overcome the empty nest syndrome. But for me, I could look at it the other way and say, right, now, um, I've always wanted to make cheese. Here's my, here's my one opportunity. I, you know, I've, I now have, um, have, have a little bit of freedom, so let's absolutely go for it. And uh, so I went back and did, did some retraining and, uh, uh, from various places around the country and then tried to get some work experience. And nothing doing really. Nobody seemed very keen to take on a middle-aged woman with an empty nest syndrome. So, so, so uh, it didn't really seem to work very well. So, okay, what next? Um, well, the you know more or less on our doorstep, the place with far more small family farms making cheese than anywhere else, of course, is France. So, um, with the with the woofing scheme, which is absolutely great. Uh, Worldwide working opportunities on organic farms. Um, I took myself off for the summer and visited four different farms in central southern France. And m more, I think, more by luck than anything else, happened to pick four really interesting farms with um, where they were making cow's milk cheese, sheep's milk, and goat's milk. So I got a little bit of an um, experience of, um, of all four. And um, all very small scale, um, unpasteurized, uh, where all direct sales through the local market. So it was a real eye-opener to see really how it could be done. And um, on, on one of those farms in the Auvergne, right up in the Massive Central, um, Raphael, Raphael the Frock, he, he, he was really in desperate need of a, um, a cheesemaker. So after coming back from that summer and really feeling that, hmm, yeah, that was good, I, um, um, I heard from him and he said, well, look, do you want to come back and... Uh, um, help me out in the dairy. Well, I, I just sort of jumped at that chance, and um, I think it was a bit rash from his point of view because he, he decided that he wanted to carry on with the cows and put me in charge of the dairy. And really, I'd only had that one summer of, of experience, so um, I made a lot of mistakes. Oh my goodness! But it was a great way to learn. And uh, there in the Auvergne, we were surrounded by these just glorious flower-rich meadows and. Um, when we talk about flower-rich meadows here, I mean, they're just not a patch. I'm really sorry, but those, those, those Auvergne meadows were something, again... And as to why, you know, there's a whole history of land management. I think it's a very complicated reason why they still exist there, and whereas we seem to have lost the vast majority of our meadows here. Not all, not all. We, we still have some meadows, but that, that, was, that was a complete delight. And um, so... Raphael allowed me to make a little bit of some of the cheese that I had been making back in Wales before going out there. So there was a sort of a carfilly that travelled out to France, to the Auvergne, but became a little bit French. We called it le galou, the Welsh out there. And then it sort of evolved out there. And then how I had the temerity to bring a bit back and dump it on the desk in Neil's yard, I, I do not know. But I, and now to think that I'm sitting here, I can't, I can't believe it. Anyway, yes. 
Well, let's taste. Um, let's bring around. Now, we have two different batches of Kerry's cheese, which is called Brevibach. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about yeah. what kind of cheese this is? Yes, because... Um, um, and they're two different batches. Yeah. yeah. Because um, as well as doing the sort of vaguely Cardfilly type out in France, Raphael's, one of his standard cheeses was, um, was to make little lactics. And, and just about all the cheesemakers there, they, they made their, their main cheese, and it might have been a Saint-Nectaire or a, or a Blue or whatever, but just about everybody made, made lactics on, on the side because... Um, on on the market stall, it was a really good seller, and uh, um, basically it was a cheese you could just sort of keep going, mainly during during the summer months. Um, and um, can I just jump in and ask a question? Does everyone here know what a lactic cheese is? Is that something that would be oh. helpful to define? Okay. Um, do you want to, or do you want me to, or how do you? Uh, oh well, do you, do, you, do you want it? No, no. Yeah. I'll, I'll so. A lactic cheese describes a cheese of a certain style that's made by doing essentially something quite similar to what Carrie was describing on her stovetop when she was a kid, where you take um, milk and you let it sour over the course of many hours and you get what looks like essentially a yogurt. And this is a really delicate curd and then you scoop that spoonful by spoonful into molds. It drains over the course of many hours and you end up with a cheese that's quite yogurty and fresh in flavor and it has a sort of friable texture in the middle. So quite crumbly but they can also be quite smooth. And these are usually cheeses that are sold within a couple of weeks of being produced. So that's, that's the style of cheese people were making on the side. Absolutely, and just about everybody was making those. And on, on Raphael's farm, the the um, the woman who'd started off his dairy was um, um, was Bibi, and she she had started off making these lactics, and so her her lactics were called Pretty Bibi. And Raphael has to admit, rather reluctantly, carried on with them. But when I arrived, I took them on with absolute um, enthusiasm because. Um, um, for me, that was just such a satisfying cheese uh, and to make. So then eventually, coming back to Wales, where, and I think we might talk about sheep's milk in a minute, but um, where, um, you know, the, the, the real opportunities seemed to be to, 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 to go down the sheep, the, uh, the sheep milk line, quite naturally, I, I wanted to do some lactics as well, as well as pro- possibly doing a sort of cardfilly type. And originally... I was intending mainly to make the, the you know, the, the, the cardfilly type with a little bit of lactic on the side. But the way it's turning out, it seems to be completely on its head, and we're making mainly lactics with just a little bit of the, of the cardfilly type for sort of local, local sales at home. So um, this, this, this cheese that you're tasting now, the, the, um, the batch number one is... is um, the lactic cheese, as, as I well, more or less envisage it, I mean, it has evolved too. I know to say I envisage it like this is not true. It's how it's, but how it sort of um, eventually turned out. And but um, unlike Ruth, and as much as I would love to be consistent, I really just don't manage consistency at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm really hopeful that you know I'm just at the start of my journey, and that eventually I might gain a bit of consistency because. Um, but at the moment, consistency is for the birds, really. And um, um, so the, the, the batch two you've got was um, a batch that, to my mind, had probably gone completely wrong, really. Um, 
And um, <laughs> when, when, when they arrived down at Neil's yard, I believe they went completely blue. Is we this did. right? You could probably tell the story of this a little yes. bit better I mean, than me, really. We take this cheese when it's quite young. I think you bring it within its first week of life That's or so, right. before yes. the rind has even formed, and then we take custody of it and do our, do our thing in our drying and maturing rooms. And so always when these young cheeses arrive, they look more or less the same, but sometimes they have minds of their own. And this was a batch that we brought in, and within really the first 24 hours, it was clear that they were not progressing in the normal in the normal fashion. There was a lot of mold that was growing on the outside of them, and we're, I think we, as a group of people, tend to be a little bit mold-phobic and conservative in our in our tastes, and probably too much so. I mean, these are, these are farmhouse cheeses. After all, we expect to have variation from batch to batch. But this one was really singled out as a complete outlier. And I think the interesting thing to me is that it went down this different route, whereas instead of having this sort of yeasty, crinkly pink rind, it's got a really thick... Um, moldy rind, but as a result, it's also broken down completely differently. There are different enzymes going to work. The flavor is big. The the texture is silky and smooth. And actually, coming back around to taste these cheeses that were sort of on the pile of, do we send these to the pigs or you know what can we do with them? Actually, they were really delicious. And I thought it was a good opportunity to bring in a cheese that hadn't quite worked, but in a way also has a real charm of its own. I don't know if you agree. Well, I'm just absolutely um, 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 astonished. I, because um, um, back at home, I don't have any cheeses that turn out like that. And I think, is that really my cheese? Oh, so it's our fault, you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm so pleased. Yeah, no, I'm very, very pleased indeed. Um, I should have to try and do the same at home. But, but the, the, it, it, it's, um, it's one of the early lactation cheeses. And... Um, and I was having some problems, you know, with blue on several batches. And so when in doubt, I can pick up the phone to Raphael, can't I? You know, and say, hey, what's going on? You know, what, what do I do? What, what am I doing wrong? And, uh, and he more or less shrugged his shoulders and said, well, if you're trying to make cheese out of the first month of sheep's milk, you know, what, what do you expect? <laughs> and, and I think it comes down to one, one of the, probably one of the main differences in that they're not not that he milks sheep, but he has you know he has many of his neighbours and his friends who do milk sheep, and and they're but very very strongly, the the lambs would be left on for a month, and then the ewes would be weaned after, after you know after well months five weeks six weeks I mean I'm not exactly sure the exact date but around that time, and then then the the sheep would be milked. But the downside to that is that the lactation is so short anyway. You only just about got going, and they're tailing off at the end of the lactation, and, you, and you've got to pack up shop for the year. So, um, so, but on the other hand, also there's obviously some very strong welfare issues there too. And um, so, uh, with with my local farmer, and I might say it's a little bit more about Alan later on. But I've um, the the um, um, I don't milk my own sheep, and this 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 this, this is another. Uh, um, another distance. I work very, very closely with with um, um, a farm down on the Thleen Peninsula, and he's um, Alan is milking just for me, and we're very keen to progress in in a way that's that's going to work out, you know, for both of us. And um, so he was thinking originally that no, 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 he wanted to do like everyone else here is and wean straight away and women, but I think he is possibly coming round now to the idea of at least a sort of staged weaning, so that we don't. 
have to deal with just entirely early lactation milk and all the problems that come with it. But anyway, we're we're um, we're learning, and uh, you know we're seeing trying to see what works and 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 also seeing what the customers want too, because it is pretty clear that you know that high welfare issues are a really really strong part about the. Uh, that leads me very clearly into sort of the next subject that would be interesting to discuss is I think that something about your approach, maybe it's coming from your um, background in grasslands management and experience in the Auvergne working with these high biodiversity meadows, This the way in which the milk that you are making your cheese with is produced is really highly unusual and I think it feeds into a lot of conversations about organic production but also in terms of carbon sequestration and sort of farming that mitigates the effects of climate change and I don't know if you want to talk at all about that and um, how you think that that impacts the flavor of the cheese or whether there are other aspects of that that are important to you and that have informed the way you've designed your business? Well, it is something that's always been important to me and, I, you know, particularly now, it's something that's coming up to, that, I, that it's um, really hitting, uh, hitting the news and the surface in a big way and, and I think if we haven't addressed it up to now, we probably will have to very shortly or else, uh, you know... Uh, Get to a point where our, well, largely our sales start dropping off. So I think I think we do need to, to to address this. Um, with with um, with Alan's milk, we um, he's a, um, a small um, um, organic farm anyway, and he was very keen to um, um, be as sort of, uh, with, with, with as few inputs as possible. So we, from the word go, he was going to go from, for a, for a, a, um, a grass-fed system. And, and even though his med... I, there's no way I can claim that his meadows are the, the equivalent of the lovely Auvergne flower-rich meadows. But they, they're, they're um, a good deal better than most. You know, they're rather more interesting. If you went in there and looked, you'd find many more species than your average ryegrass lay. You know, it's... it's, it's it's not bad, um, so that that already was quite good. Um, also, then he, he, when he started off, well, actually, can I can I tell you the story of how how, how it started off because it was it was good. Um, when when I came back to um, went back from France first of all, and and uh, and decided that that I wanted to make sheep's milk uh, in Wales mainly because it was seemed to be quite a good marketing thing. Apart from the fact that I really enjoyed making cheese, you know, from sheep's milk, but in Wales. I mean, you know, why on earth weren't we making sheep's cheese? I mean, this this was this was crazy. Um, there was a slight problem at that time that nobody was actually milking sheep there, so um, <laughs> uh, which 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 was a bit of a drawback. But um, so it, it, uh, initially, I had to go all the way up, well, well, to your neck of the woods, to Simon Stott, just just mm-hmm. round the corner, mm-hmm. up in Chipping, and, and Simon was great. He was really helpful, and um, um, he supplied me with some sheep's milk that. Um, I took all the way back to Wales, so really, carbon footprint at this point was really not good. Uh, so we, we took it back, and in, in our local food technology centre, we you know, worked on some recipes and so on, which was really useful. And then, um, so I started making the cheese and started selling it, and the, um, um, and the Welsh media really latched onto this, because I, I, I also speak a bit of Welsh, as a, um, um, as a Welsh learner, and they really liked this, the fact that you know, I was willing to to 
muddled my way along in Welsh. So we we had quite a few of the of the um, of the cameras and the microphones coming along, and um, and on on one of the farming programmes on 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 the Welsh Channel, I think I said something rather ridiculous. Come on, you farmers! Come on! Why 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 aren't we milking sheep here? Probably in very bad Welsh. And, and anyway. Um, Next thing I knew, Alan picked up the phone and said, well, yes, I'm looking to and diversify and I would be quite interested. <laughs> and um, which I thought, great, this is good. But I didn't really think too much of it because that sort of thing tended to happen a little bit. So I thought, great, great, good, and then promptly forgot about it. And then the next spring, he phoned me up again and said, well, look, um, I've got an offer of uh, 20 organic Friesland ewes to, to pick up next week. Um, shall we go for it? <gasps> And at which point, I thought, gosh, um, OK. Um, and I had, at that point, nowhere to make, make my cheese on a regular basis. And so, but I wasn't going to turn down that opportunity, so we went for it and somehow or other muddled through that, last, that, that first year and, um, and it sort of worked out, just about. And then I've, I've now sort of managed to move to share a dairy with a, um, um, with a neighbour who happens to make a blue cheese, which might possibly explain why we're getting a bit... But anyway... Oh, no. <laughs> and, um, and, um, but but the, 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 the interesting development there, you know, from Alan's point of view, was he, he, he got his Frieslers and really found that actually, under the grass-fed system, they weren't doing too well. They obviously needed a bit of extra... So he decided to bring some of his um, local breed clean news in, uh, um, into the milking flock. And, and, and there was a little bit of historical precedent for this because I think they were a breed that formed part of the British milk breed sheep and, and we, we now find that cleans probably were milked on a very small basis fairly regularly down on the Clean Peninsula, but I, I didn't know that at the time. So, so he started milking his cleans as well and, um, and we found that actually... Well, firstly, that the themes thrived far better. They were they didn't mind going out in the Welsh weather, whereas the Frieslands would uh, <laughs> very miserable. The themes would just go straight out and start grazing whatever. And okay, they didn't give much milk, but the milk that they did give, well, we, you know, turning turning out to be really quite interesting. Um, so that that was how it was going. Now, last year we were, I suppose, up to about sort of fifty fifty percent theme milk. This year. It's got quite high. It's got up to 75% clean milk. So we're just discovering, hmm, now what's this meaning for the cheese? And, you know, it may mean that maybe, the, you know, the fat content is really getting quite high and maybe it's not draining quite as well. Or maybe I've got to, I've got to work out a way of how to deal with that, you know. And uh, so it, it's very much a learning process. Um, so that's, that's on the sort of the, the grass on the clean side. I haven't quite said much about climate change but but i think this is where we're trying to do something that can operate on a small scale grass-fed you know without too many inputs um it's it's yet to be properly financially sustainable you know we're, we're still very much at the early stages of this and um but the, the, the hope is that this will but my, my my real big worry and i, and I don't know what 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 you think about this, and we haven't really d- d- discussed this before, is that with with all the, um, the, 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 the 
the, the, the emphasis now being putting on, put on climate change and the, 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 the insistence that this is also going to involve you know, reducing your meat and your dairy intake, which I, personally I'm, I, I'm not against as long as it's not cutting it out, you know. Um, um, but it, for, for those people who, who decide to maybe cut it out at this moment, maybe the very, well, at least some of our very good customers. So somehow or other, I, I feel a bit on, on a mission to try and explain that, that actually there are some meat and dairy products that are, that are actually pretty good for the environment and ultimately, you know, not so bad if, if we're thinking about climate change as well. I, now, I'm quite happy. I, I know there are differing views on that, but... Uh, it's certainly something that, for which I feel quite, quite motivated at the moment. And, uh, and if we can do something to, you know, to help promote that and to, to explore ways... Now, I know, for one, I have got to seriously cut down my own carbon footprint. From I'm travelling all over the country and I've really got to do... And so we've got big, big plans afoot to try and get the actual the whole process down so that... We're much more carbon neutral, but that's probably over the next few years. And I really hope that you know my customers can go along with with that journey, and maybe hopefully at the moment not feel too bad that the current carbon footprint is maybe not brilliant. But we're working towards a much much better mm. carbon footprint, and it's probably very, stacks up very very um, favorably against a lot of the meat and dairy that's on the market right well, now. I, w- I would think almost for certain. Yes, mm. I think that's a really good place to um, to leave it. Thank you so much, Carrie. Um, and a journey, a journey started, in a way. Um, we have left a few minutes now for questions and answers from the audience. So um, I don't know if anyone, if anyone has any questions that you'd like to ask either Carrie or Ruth about cheese or otherwise. General questions. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> this works. It actually works. Okay, hi. Um, this is kind of a general question to the both of you, but what's been your favourite thing about the whole journey that you've been on with making cheese? Um, <clears throat> the success of making a really good cheese in my, yeah, you know, something what's going to carry on and hopefully, you know, Perhaps one of Graham's sons will carry it on. That would be absolutely amazing if they would. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, um, a real privilege, really, to make, you know, make a cheese, what people really enjoy. And uh, that gives me a lot of pleasure. It really does. Knowing that I've made something, what people really enjoy eating. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. It really is. And... I, and without a doubt, it's ridiculously hard work, isn't it? And and but when you can see that that uh, you, you end up with something that mm. people really appreciate, yeah. And 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 I certainly for me, I mean, it doesn't always work out that way, you know. But when it does, then it's you know, it really does make it worth. Yeah, you get a lot of satisfaction from mm. it, an mm. awful lot of satisfaction. Yeah, and it's, do, yeah, yeah. And it's something, but it's sort of like this funny mixture between an art and the science too, you know. Mm. That, it's a little bit of both, and uh, that's really quite a satisfying, satisfying mm. thing. I think. Mm-hmm. In the back. Is it 
because I'd like to ask a practical question mainly to Ruth because she's making a harder cheese and um, I have tried making a little bit of cheese at home which is um, just a soft cheese but you do get an awful lot of whey what what did you do with your whey you didn't mention any pigs or anything like that is there something you can cook with it or what can, what, what can you do with it well, when we um, first started making the cheese, we had pigs. We used to feed it all the way to the pigs. And then when we went out of pigs, when pigs weren't a very good price, we uh, started feeding it and we reared beef and veal on it. And they absolutely loved it. Yeah, they did. When the cows used to come up the lane to be milked, uh, we had another, you know, big cheese vat, which we used to put our spare way in. And we'd put lids on, and the cows would knock the lids off <laughs> and have a drink. And then when he got them into the milking parlour, they wouldn't eat any um, any food, any any what we call provin, because they were that full of the weight. So satisfying. Um, that's one thing I find really sad now, because they just throw it all away. Mm, no one will bother to carry it round. We used to carry it round to our calves and and we're beef, and it's a really really good feed. It saved a lot of provin. It was really good. Yeah, so um, we find it very sad, John and I, that they don't, no one will um, take it round to the uh, to the stock because it made them really fit. You know, the the coat shone, and you know, the the young stock were really well. And we've tried to give it to people who have pigs and things, but no one will bother to come for it. So it's really sad, really. I mean, people come onto the farm, and. Um, you know, from different areas, um, French and different ones, and they can't understand why we throw all the way away. No, so it's sad, really. Yeah. Mm. Do you have any tips or tricks for getting rid of whey or using it for something well, I'm, delicious? I, um, I operate on a much smaller scale, so I do have some outlets for, for uh, pigs, for some of the lactic mm. whey, but for the smaller make uh, the small amount of hard cheese I make, one is a sort of very r- roughly a sort of manchego-ish type. So it, the, um, the way it comes off really quite sweet. It isn't particularly acid. And I have a series of friends who like making um, 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 ricotta because sheep's whey is very, very good for that. Mm. I mean, it doesn't use up all the way, but that, that feels quite satisfying. And, and I always get a report back and they say, oh, it didn't quite work today, or, oh, it was a great make today. So that, that's, that, that, that's always quite nice. Um, then... I would love to at some point or other, and I, I don't know whether it would work with, with, with sheep's milk whey, but I know in some cases pe- people will separate the whey to take out, take out the cream to make butter, but generally that's only in quite large quantities mm. to make that mm. worthwhile. We've thought of doing that, but um, I think the separator, I don't know how many knives it would have in it. It was tremendous, so what little bit we would make out of it... I mean, we probably get between four and 500 gallons of milk now. Um, and what little bit of cream or butter they would make out of it, it would take longer to wash the machine up <laughs> than what, you know, what it was worth. So they, they have looked into it. They have looked into it, yes. Yeah, but people nowadays just don't work like the old people did. (laughs) (laughs) I've trundled hundreds of gallons away, rounding buckets, you know, and the stock just love it, so it's really sad that it's not used. It is really sad. There may be, you know, scope, I think, for various sort of biomass type, you know, to Mm -hmm. actually turning it back into sort of energy production too. Mm. And uh, the 
various people who've been turning it into alcohol too. I think I think there's there the one or two sort of initiatives out there anyway. For, it's interesting. I think Isle of Mull uh, Dairy in Scotland is looking into making a whey gin with botanicals from wow. their, <laughs> yes, from the from their fields and from the island. It sounds like it's going to be fascinating. But I think again, the infrastructure needed to do that. It's a big it's a big investment. Mm. Um, but yeah, look out for yes. whey gin coming soon. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Other questions? Does red tape and the different laws cause a lot of problems and obstacles to the production of cheese? <laughs> you want to go on that one first? <laughs> when I first started making cheese, there was no red tape. It was wonderful. It was a way of life. <laughs> but now every little detail of uh, everything what goes on in the dairy, who's washed what up, who's done this, who's done that, has to be logged every day, every single day. And um, I've forgotten what... There's a lady what comes round from Wales and she... Um, what is she doing at Bronwyn? She, uh, you have to go through it. I can't remember what it's called now. Well, that's a really complicated, you know... Um, is this the audit? The, the salsa audit? Yes. They're doing? Yeah. So it's like a third-party audit, which a lot of companies who are making cheese now are being encouraged to get because... And it's almost... It's bureaucracy, but it's bureaucracy to save you. You can have one audit, when we, we're in the same boat with all of our cheesemakers here, with all of our customers. Each one of them wants us to fill out a form about our safety features and all of the systems mm. that we have in place, which is important. But we could spend our entire lives just filling out questionnaires for our customers. And by having this audit, you spend one day a year having the person from the auditing company come through and look at every detail. And then you give them a certificate. And when somebody asks you to fill out a form for them, you say, take it or leave it um, with the certificate. So, it, But it is. It's very, it's very detailed. And it mm. does take a lot of energy and effort. Mm. And you know, on the most recent version of the audit, they said designated tasting areas must be within the dairy where product can be sampled. And you think, really? Like, do we actually have to put a sign on the wall that says tasting area so that we can taste cheese there? And in fact, now going around a bunch of um, cheesemakers' uh, facilities, more often than not, we see on the sign, tasting area. <laughs> that is red tape gone too far. Mm. It's right. crazy. Yeah. It is. Um, yes, I don't know quite how to answer this. I think... Uh, you know, anybody thinking of venturing into this has got to be completely determined because uh, you, you will find you'll find paperwork at every single turn, and actually, people uh, sort of risk averse at every. You know, you, you you'll have you'll be spending your time persuading people, uh, reassuring people that what you're doing is okay. I'm, I'm talking now from an unpasteurised um, 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 perspective that, um, and I. I Admittedly, I have made life rather difficult for myself in that um, I'm dealing not with one local authority, but two. And because the milk comes from one county, go, we, I make it in the other, and then it comes in for the hard cheese anyway, comes back and is stored in the first county. So they all think it's all very complicated. And, and um, um, 
Um, I have a hard time, yes, yes. I, I feel very sorry for myself, yes. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the things I would add to that as a challenge is that in almost every single case, the cheesemaker knows more about their product and what makes it safe and what controls are in place and understands the process far better than the person sent to regulate them. And so they're in the unenviable position of having to teach the person who's supposed to be regulating them about the risks and how they're controlling them. And often that power discrepancy uh, can be quite problematic. So it is, it is a big, it's a big challenge. And I take my hat off to all of these cheesemakers um, for being totally patient in the face of what seems often very absurd. Mm. Was there a question back here? So you said at the beginning cheesemaking was a woman's job and then it went macho. Um, and I kind of wondered where we are today with women cheesemaking and what the future looks like. That's a very good question. Um, yeah, we, we have quite a few uh, women that work in our dairy. Yeah, they we're very good at it. Um, the longer they're there, the stronger they get. <laughs> the more muscles they build up. Yeah. It is quite a strenuous job, but they enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. There's one um, man works with Graham, John, Johnny, who you know does the packing and uh, sorts the orders out. But in the dairy, we have you know two ladies. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they enjoy it. You know, and I make them good meals. They've good breakfasts and good lunches <laughs> to keep their energy up. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I, I think. I was just trying to think of the of the uh, cheesemakers in North Wales, and, and um, there aren't many of us, but of of, of the of, of the group, the, the sort of loose group of sort of about half a dozen, four are 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 female. Um, 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 I share a dairy with a, with a, with with men. I win Johns, and and she like uh, she um, um, is on the farm and uses the milk um, her husband milks, and mm. she. She uses the milk, and she's she, I mean, she's been doing that now for eight eight years or so. Um, um, I think of my own sister on on the farm, and when when we were brought up, you know, my mother was very much hands off. You know, she she uh, organised the household and everything, else and didn't really venture onto the farm. Whereas now now my sister Rosie is is completely equal. They're they're on on all aspects of the. Of, of the farm in Devon. Admittedly, she doesn't make cheese, but if they did, undoubtedly she would be the one making the cheese. So, um, I, I think it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty much evened up, hasn't it? I think. I think a really exciting sort of example within the cheese world right now of sort of. Uh, this gender balance maybe going in an opposite direction is the is the story of Havid, which is a Welsh cheddar, which was you know it's it's only been made for just over ten years, but during that time, you know, like so many of the other cheddars, made by a very male team, and then um, over time they've added more women to the team that's working on the cheese, and just recently we learned that Rob, who's the head cheese maker at Havid, is now leaving to go make cheese somewhere else, and the women who have been working with him are going to take over as the head cheese. Makers. So finally, we have a female-led cheddar team working within the UK once again. So I think I think the future looks at least a little bit more equal, which is wonderful. Mm. There. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for both Ruth and for Carrie. When you look back at the beginning of your cheesemaking career, what is the one piece of advice that you wish you hadn't given? 
Oh gosh. Golly, I don't know what the answer to that is at the minute. Hang on, I'd have to think about that. Maybe Bruce, or maybe for you. That you wish I hadn't given. Um, um, given to who, love? What, just, just Someone gave to you. Someone gave to me. Uh, I, I think, looking back, there was probably all sorts of advice that... Um, they, they, they could see, in my case, there was a bit of a crisis looming because um, I'd been a single parent and, um, you know, my son was leaving home. And uh, so when, when, when my friends heard, you know, that, oh, yes, I was going to make cheese, they thought, oh, yes, yes, great, great. That, that'll keep her occupied, you know. And so there was probably a lot of advice telling me, oh, yes, yes, you know, go and do it. It'll be easy, sort of. Not, not, not exactly saying it'll be easy, but I don't think the sort of advice that was coming in at that point had anywhere near the, 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 the sort of realisation of what commitment it was going to be, what, what uh, you know, at, at least in, in the short term, you can forget about a work-life balance. You know, that's, that's it's, it's sort of, you know, you've really got to... I, mean, I really hope I'm going to get through this phase and well, we will get to a point, I hope, and, and, it, and it's really encouraging hearing, you know, about your family life and so on. Mm. And, and, and I would really love to get to that stage but I haven't got there yet and um, although I, in some ways I'm glad people didn't tell me that because maybe I wouldn't have done it so, <laughs> uh, so yes yes goes both ways mm. Mm. I think a lot of people when I started thought I was silly for starting to make cheese um, you know because it was you know seeing my mum it was you know a lot of work and especially when you have a family you know you go out and do a lot in the evening but um, it's just something, uh, it was either pack up farming and, you know, it was lovely to be able to work with John, you know, we were a good team and we helped each other, you know, he used to, I used to milk and he used to, you know, feed the cows and clean the, sh the sheds out and things and then he would, you know, in the afternoon he would come and gr help me grind the cheese. So, you know, it, it was um, um, a nice thing to sort of, you know, do together, it really was, yeah. So I don't know that, you know, looking back, you know, it's been hard work, but I don't know whether I'd have um, liked to have done anything else, you know, when I look back now. It, it's, been, it's been good. It has, yeah. I think we have time for one more question up here. Um, I was just wondering, the other Uh, I was just wondering, other than the cheeses that you make, um, can you give us a bit of an idea of the cheeses that you guys enjoy? Many. <laughs> yeah, gosh, yes. All sorts. Yeah, all sorts. Um, well, of course, I mean, it, 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 it's a bit cheating to say that, actually... <laughs> and I'm not just saying that, because at the moment, I'm, 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 I'm really lucky, because... Um, I deliver my cheeses in order to come down to Neil's yard up, up to Kirkham's. So, um, and, and I'm in the position that I, I don't really have enough of my own hard cheese to sell locally. So this means I can come along and have a chat with Graham and Johnny and we can discuss all which, which of the you know, good batches and I can buy a little bit from Kirkham's to supplement my, um, uh, my own cheese um, you know, back at back at home and, um, and from that point of view I'm so lucky because 
it, it absolutely definitely is my favourite. I'm seriously not just saying that. And, and um, so I can, you know, uh, it, um, it really helps me out. But, yeah, beyond that, there's all... all all sorts of other cheeses that oh, I really Oh, yeah, there's like. some lovely cheeses, yeah. We've had some lovely cheeses today. <laughs> and um, I love the Monchego, you know, the sheep's Monchego. Um, we're staying at Neil's Yard Dairies, and that's our <laughs> breakfast tomorrow, Monchego cheese <laughs> and some lovely sourdough bread. We're looking forward to that. Or as you're staying above the shop, you can sneak down in the middle of the yeah, night and eat whatever you please. You'll we'll never know yeah. who the cat burglars yeah. are. Yeah, I love Stilton, the... Um, Colson and Bassett Stilton, um, Appleby's Cheddar. I just love Montgomery's. I love them all. Yeah, yeah. I just love cheese. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. thank you very, very much to both of you. Please feel free to hang around, Bill. I think both Carrie and Ruth will be here for a little bit longer, so if there's a question that you really wanted to ask and didn't get the chance to, please come up and say hello and talk with them in person. I'm told that I am going to be whisked off with Francis to sign copies of this book if you want to know everything there is to know and more about Kirkham's Lancashire. And about two chapters that extensively discuss gender history and cheesemaking. Yes, that too. <laughs> All right, I'll... interested in this topic, this is absolutely... My husband will mansplain to you, yes. <laughs> So thank you so much once again for coming along and hope to see you again soon. A big thanks to the British Library, to Polly Russell, Susanna Stevenson, and be sure to catch the British Library's podcast called Anything But Silent. Also big thanks to Bronwyn Percival, Mrs. Ruth Kirkham, and Carrie Rhymes. As always, thank you Funky Brian for the theme song you're hearing right now. He's at BQ Funk on Instagram. You can follow the podcast at Keep It Quirky Podcast, and you can follow me at QKD. I'll see you back here soon, and until then, don't forget to keep it quirky. Mm-hmm.